I'm Forrest Brown, and you're listening to Stories for Earth. Welcome to Stories for Earth, a podcast about everything climate change and pop culture. Today, I'm excited to share an interview I did recently with Costa Butzikaris, a documentary filmmaker from the Hudson Valley of New York. Costa is the co-director and cinematographer of a new documentary called Inhabitants, an Indigenous Perspective, which tells the story of five different Native American tribes around the country who are working on preserving their traditional methods of land management. The documentary is currently making the rounds at film festivals, but it'll be available for on-demand viewing later this year. Before we get started, I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon or who sends us a donate what you want through Venmo. This is pretty much the only way this show has any kind of financial support and everything I receive gets reinvested in the podcast. Thanks again. I truly appreciate it. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Stories for Earth, and we're also part of a Discord server along with Lovis Geyer and Mary Woodbury. This is a safe space to talk about all things ecofiction and cli-fi, and it's free to join. There are links to all of these things in the show notes if you're interested in any of them. And now, here's my interview with Costa Butzikaris. I hope you enjoy. Uh, just to begin, I was hoping you'd tell us a little bit about yourself and what interested you in telling stories about um, sustainable agriculture and land management. Yeah, so... Um... I've always, you know, I've always done filmmaking as a kid. I did make a lot of skateboard videos and like a lot of kids, like a lot of millennials, you know, I think we had so (laughs) many tools to like make videos, put them on YouTube and it wasn't such a big deal. And as I got into college, I started to realize that, you know, you could really make a living making films Mm -hmm. and making documentaries specifically. And I think also my generation, I was part of, you know, kind of a group of people who really kind of affected by like peak oil and these other apocalyptic scenarios, you know, (laughs) and, and that kind of got me into farming and survival skills and kind of thinking about, Mm -hmm. you know, what's the good, you know, who, what characters in Mad Max are we going to be basically, you know, (laughs) seriously, you know, and I think that that often leads to a lot of things like farming and then kind of Mm -hmm. sustainable design, um, and permaculture, which is what I made my first documentary yeah. about. Um, okay, cool. So permaculture is kind of like okay, a design. Cool. It's like a design science that looks at like how do we redesign society to really work with the earth systems um, to make, mm-hmm. you know, it, another definition of permaculture is common sense, you know. So I, I was really attracted <laughs> to this idea of kind of like it's, you know, it's not a doomsday scenario. It's just like a redesign scenario we really need mm-hmm. to think about. Yeah. Just tweaking the way you know we're basically getting our needs met and one of the things i liked about permaculture was this concept of um having a positive impact or having a positive footprint you know a lot of the environmental movement tends to say like you need to have less impact and smaller footprint Mm -hmm. and you need to disappear and if you die that actually would be better because then you you know it kind of gets (laughs) you know it does kind of sound like that start you know this this direction so i I was really Mm -hmm. attracted to this idea of how can we actually have a really good impact and you know have a have not feel so bad about ourselves existing yeah so that's kind of what really inspired me to make my first film the kind of that that switching Mm -hmm. flipping that environmental narrative a little bit yeah 
Very cool. Yeah, permaculture is awesome. I went down like a rabbit hole a few months ago on permaculture and regenerative agriculture. And um, yeah, like you said, it was just kind of like, it seemed like it would be common sense, but so much of the way that we do agriculture today is really not common sense. So yeah, <laughs> yeah it's neat. Yeah, unfortunately it's it's capitalism. So it, it doesn't yep. make any capitalism it doesn't make any actual logic. It just makes money. So that, you yeah, know, that's, that's exactly. kind of what happens. But I mean, you know, like mm-hmm. you're saying, you get interested in these things, you go down a rabbit hole. For me, I, um, as a, as someone who, you know, had film skills and video production skills, I realized that you know, when you show up with a camera, people love to tell you all about what they're doing. And for me, I really wanted to learn a lot more about permaculture and kind of what it looked like around the world or at least around Mm -hmm. the country at that point. Um, and so I just started traveling and talking to people on their farms and, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what I realized is a way to learn is a documentary is really a great way to learn, you know, and you get exposed to a lot of stuff and get to form a lot of relationships with people so That's it's, cool. you know, it's and journalism and all kinds of, you know, anything that has to do with, you know, talking to people, it's really a yeah. free education. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, does that kind of uh, lead to how you got started on this documentary, Inhabitants? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's, there's a thread through the permaculture movement and the permaculture um, kind of the textbooks and, and some of the, the literature that mm-hmm. kind of talks about indigenous wisdom and indigenous knowledge and how that's kind of yeah. informed some of the permaculture principles. And it's kind of talked about and, and then kind of forgotten about. And it's not, it doesn't often lead to like, okay, and now let's go to this tribal community or let's actually talk to these tribal people and look at the projects mm-hmm. they're doing and actually learn from them. And it, it tends to be left out from that, from that movement. And when I looked okay. more into the history of permaculture, like Bill Mollison and, and some other folks who were actually learning from the Aborigines of Australia, yeah. from the mm-hmm. Aboriginal people. And, and they were learning about prescribed fire. They were learning about, food forestry, all these things that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, people don't realize are indigenous practices. So that kind of realizing that after I'd made the first film and thinking more about, you know, is there a way I could support more of those native voices to talk about some of their traditions and, you know, how Mm -hmm. that's been really co-opted into a lot of movements. Um, so that was kind of in the back of my head for a while. And my partner, Anna, was working in the Southwest with tribes doing climate change planning, resilience planning okay. uh, with the USDA. And, you know, it was through her partnerships that I started talking to some of the folks she was working with. And we kind mm-hmm. of naturally formed some relationships with people. And, and one of the, the conversations that would keep coming up was kind of like, you know, we need more media. We need more documentation. You know, we just uh, okay. we need we need we need to be. Um, you know, showing the world in, in a, in a better way right now, in a faster way, you know, what we're yeah. doing. And so it kind of became this collaborative effort. Um, and we, uh, yeah, basically through our friendships with these folks, we just kind of slowly mm-hmm. built this project and it's been about four years, um, oh, wow. okay. coming together. Yeah. Cool. So, um, specifically like what the documentary is about. Um, I know you were like visiting with different, um, indigenous peoples around the country, but could you tell me a little bit more about, um, who exactly you were following around? Yeah. Yeah. So the goal of the film was to, was to basically uplift, um, you know, native voices around land stewardship. And, um, we wanted to, 
look at land stewardship across the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. in the main bioregions. You know, there's kind of the film looks at the eastern forests and the plains, the mm. western drier forests, uh, Hawaii, more of a coastal yeah. community, and then the southwest really in the desert. Um, so we basically visited five communities over the course of two years, going back to each one. And starting in the east, um, the Menominee up in Wisconsin, who have one of the mm-hmm. longest-running sustainable forestry um Oh, cool. management systems like in the world yeah they've been hmm. they've been doing it for a long time and I know that. yeah they're really fascinating um there's been a lot of research showing that they actually have more standing timber in their forest than they did 200 years ago but what? they've been logging their forest um for 200 years they somehow wow. have more standing timber so you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about with them, but, you know, I could recommend a lot of great research about them. And, you know, they're really, their main focus is looking at the diversity of trees is what makes it it so Mm -hmm. strong. And today a lot of forestry or, you know, industrial forestry, looking at growing trees is having one kind of tree for thousands of monoculture. Yeah. 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 Yikes. Yeah. And then, so the Blackfeet are <laughs> the Blackfeet tribe out in the plains of, um, mm-hmm. Montana are restoring Buffalo okay. black to the plains. Um, the Hopi tribe down in, in Northern Arizona, um, are continuing and, and restoring their dryland farming, which is basically farming mm-hmm. without water at all, which is okay. um, wow. pretty hard to wrap your head around. And, you know, yeah. we're still kind of <laughs> understanding how, you know, but a lot of that process is, has to do with um, adapting seeds to be able to live in drought and planting them oh, deeper okay. and deeper and deeper so they can access really low water. Uh, but just really, 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 you know, fascinating ways of, of um, you know, working with plants over thousands of years to be able to deal with that climate mm-hmm. really well, you know, which is something that wow. um, our modern agriculture is not really taking advantage of at all or, or yeah. you know, even even grappling with. Um, and then we spent time with the Curry tribe up in Northern California who are bringing back prescribed fire to the landscape okay. to, you know, help, you know, not only uh, make their community safer by creating mm-hmm. these safe, these safe dead zones around their community. So when a wildfire does come, it can't enter because they've already burned, mm-hmm. but also it really increases all the wild food supply for animals and also increases things like huckleberries and acorns and mushrooms. And there's a whole host of reasons people should be doing prescribed burning if they live in California. Um, And then the last community that we spent time with was in Hawaii where they're, they're trying to bring back these food forests, which are like Mm -hmm. multi-dimensional food forests that were completely wiped out by mostly by Monsanto where, you know, Monsanto, there's a lot of it. It's funny how they tend to pop up in a lot of places. Yeah, they actually went out to Hawaii really early in their development, Monsanto, because they knew they would have less regulation out there. Um, Hawaii has a lot of different laws. And also because they they bought up a lot of land really early on, so they do a lot of their chemical Mm -hmm. testing out there. And there's a great film called Island Earth that actually looks really specifically at kind of Monsanto's chemical testing and how it's affecting Native people. It's, It's pretty insane. So yeah, yeah, we, we try to paint kind of a wide swath of what's going on across the country, um, as a way to kind of highlight, you know, the main places that people live and they could understand and relate to at least one of the stories, um, in their Mm -hmm. region. That's cool. I love that. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess kind of talking about Monsanto just got me thinking about, I guess, just colonization in general, because in a lot of ways, I feel like that's what Monsanto kind of does in situations like this. Um, but like through that process, it's a really like violent, horrible process that's been going on for a really long time. I know a lot of indigenous people have uh, like really lost a lot of knowledge that was traditionally passed down from like elders on like how to manage the land in these different ways. Um, do you think like more documentaries like this can help to kind of preserve that and, you know, having it in a recorded format? I know earlier you were saying that uh, some of the people you talked to said that was an issue. Yeah. I mean, we're certainly trying to inspire more native people to see what's possible. I mean, that was a big yeah. goal for, for, you know, with our partners setting out the, you know, there's really this, there's this idea in, um, that you can't be what you can't see, you know, and, Mm, if you grow okay. up not seeing, um, you know, the restoration of your land management practices and of your culture and, and, you know, then it, it's hard for you to, to really fully believe it can happen. And one of the yeah, things that, totally. you know, a lot of tribal leaders would tell us is, you know, we really want to show people it's possible, um, especially for the Kirk tribe, bringing back prescribed fire only in the past 10 years have they been legally even allowed to do this. Um, okay, you know, this yeah. has been illegal for over 150 years. So it's, it's things like that kind of showing that, you know, these, these seeds are starting to sprout and there's, there really is like massive opportunity right now. And, and the more people know about what's, you know, what's starting to move, especially in certain regions. Um, you know, the Black Peak mm-hmm. tribe is, runs this, this bigger program called the Intertribal Buffalo Council. So they're bringing Buffalo okay. back to other tribes too. And they're trying to repopulate a lot of the plains just through kind of the tribal reservation network and really pushing this effort to restore Buffalo, you know, as a wild animal, but also as a food, you know, cause the cause Buffalo mm-hmm. are not domesticated, you know, I mean, it, people, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, a, it's hard to wrap your head around too. you know, things that are really outside Western culture, like Blackfeet have this relationship with Buffalo, but they're not a domesticated animal. They're completely mm. wild still. And the yeah. way they manage, the way they farm them and manage them, it's, it's tending the wild, you know, they they let them range oh, okay. on thousands of acres and, um, you know, essentially harvest them, you know, once a some of them once a year. So, I mean, it's, mm. it's much more in line with tending a wild system than it is with, you know, wow. highly managed farming. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that because I just always assumed that, you know, if you were like uh, like ranching buffalo or farming buffalo or whatever, it was kind of like cows, but sounds like not so much. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point, you know. I mean, one of, so one of the kind of the threads we're looking at in the film is this, we're not just, you know, there's kind of this land stewardship restoration, but also how is that kind mm-hmm. of clashing with or meeting with the effects of climate change? And when you yeah. talk about buffalo and terms of and and cows, so cows have completely, you know, erased where the buffalo used to be is now all almost all cows yeah. and yeah. corn and soy, you know. And they believe mm-hmm. there was around sixty million buffalo when um, oh the first <laughs> colonizers landed here, you know. And wow. today there's a couple hundred million cows, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. And and the problem with cows is they they are, they are not resilient in any way in terms yeah. of climate. They cannot handle the heat. They cannot handle the cold. You know, a lot of cows die off mm. in severe winters. Um, cow, you know, buffalo can go days without drinking. 
and they have this really thick fur that falls off. So they actually shed mm-hmm. fur um, easily. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is really, I mean, a cow has no fur. It doesn't shed. It doesn't yeah. thicken up, you know, so they're kind of helpless. And, you mm. know, it's not their fault. They're from, you know, cows are from like India, you know, the water buffalo. Yeah. They're a totally different, um, it's just kind of like an inappropriate use of, you know, that animal across the plains, which the plains are severe, yeah. really intense winter, really intense summer. Yeah. So, you know, I think it, you know, it's, it's not just about restoring a traditional practice, but it's also about thinking about these, these native species like Buffalo and, and these native plants that know how to be here and do mm-hmm. really well here. So I think it's just yeah. so many, you know, reasons to want to support these, you know, projects. Yeah, totally. And also you mentioning that, um, until I think you said the past 10 years that it was actually illegal for, uh, the tribe in California to do prescribed burns. And, um, as I've been learning more about this topic, um, it's just been really eye opening to see how many practices like that were outlawed and actually were illegal. So when we, when I say things like colonization led to, you know, like a lot of knowledge being lost about this kind of stuff. Like it was literally illegal to do a lot of things. Like I think foraging was, um, illegal in a lot of places or still is actually, I know it's illegal to forage on like federal property, like in national parks, I think. But, um, yeah, yeah, I was, there's this other podcast that I listen to a lot called um, Ologies with Allie Ward. And, um, she recently had a guest on there who's, I guess, kind of like a TikTok sensation now, but, um, her username is like at, black forager and she's uh this young woman who lives in ohio and her whole thing is just going on tiktok and foraging through the woods and um, i love her i love her yeah Yeah. oh okay yeah Yeah, you're familiar with her yeah but she was like talking about in that interview how you know like a lot of the laws that we have around that now are um and this is in the case of black people not indigenous people but um i'm assuming there's a lot of parallels there that you know, a lot of those laws were put in place to keep um, people like her from, you know, living off the land, essentially, and from, like, trying to, like, assimilate them, so to speak, into, you know, so-called American culture, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if people, you know, I don't know if, how many people know this, but the reason why the buffalo were killed off to almost down to 500 from 60 million in the course mm-hmm. of about 100 years it was done by the U S government to control the plains tribes because, you know, they basically had one main food source, which was the Buffalo. And, you know, and I think that is symbolic of, of how the U S has treated the land across the whole country in terms of tactics for control and domination, you know, usually is wiping out a food source um, to control people and to control place and then replacing Mm -hmm. that ecosystem with, with grain with corn or soybean yeah. you know it was wheat back then and you know but it's it's this kind of this yeah it's this theme that continues on and, and manipulating yeah. the land to have it be what you want it to do you know yeah. and that tends to <laughs> lead to climate change you know and it kind <laughs> of comes full yeah. circle <laughs> you know i mean the the plains themselves are one of the most important carbon sequestration sinks yeah. in the entire uh, north america you know, yeah, so by, by you know, removing the buffalo and amazing amount and then plowing the uh-huh. whole plains up, they released, you know, the Dust Bowl was like one of the biggest releases of carbon. Yeah. And, you know, so you, you, the colonization actually, you know, is the beginning of climate change. 
So yeah, totally. I mean, it's really, it's, it's important to see those layers. I think for us, you know, as non-native people, we're just continuing to learn all this and, and see how this, mm-hmm. the, the trajectory of colonization is really, that's where climate change, the story begins. It's really like yep. the complete, you know, disruption and, um, altering of the landscape. And yeah, that's, totally. you know, it's a lot of what our film is about is kind of looking at that history in all these different mm-hmm. regions. That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, that kind of makes me think about the title of the film itself, you know, talking about like native species and being native to a place. How did you land on the title Inhabitants? Yeah, so, uh, you know, a, a theme that kept coming up or a phrase and um, was kind of this, this, this phrase, original inhabitants. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really powerful because I think it, it says a lot and it, it it kind of there's a, there's a so much story there, and mm-hmm. the first film I made was called Inhabit, and I realized it was kind of a thread building of you know Inhabit is kind of about permaculture and kind of this this new mm-hmm. generation of of you know people trying to figure out how do we live in in this region and inhabitants mm-hmm. is kind of this next step and for me it's kind of this evolution of thinking of like but how do we go back and actually support native people and and look at what they're doing and and yeah. you know take their guidance yeah. seriously and and put them at, at the front of the stage and mm-hmm. so for me it's kind of an evolution of my own thought process and i mm-hmm. I, I think for people if you watch the film like if you watch inhabit then you watch inhabitants i think you could there's kind of a thread uh, between okay. the, the two. Cool. I like that. Um, yeah. And that was another thing that really struck me about the film was just how much, um, it seemed like there was just so much intentionality about collaborating with indigenous people for this film. I know like one, uh, one of the producers of the film, I think I'm saying his name, right? Ben Alex Dupree. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that he's a member of the Colville Confederated tribes up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, like why was why was this aspect of making the film so important to you? Like, what was what was that like? Yeah, so we came into the film knowing a couple of tribal project leaders basically, and you know we mm-hmm. talked to them about coming out to film um, their projects. And as we met more people, you know, we realized that we don't, you know, and you know, being non-native people, being outsiders, you know, we, sure. it's not for us to say the best way these stories can be told. Um, yeah. we don't know all of the aspects of, you know, what things might be more sensitive, you know, what things might be more, um, effective to help. So mm-hmm. we, we really wanted to do this collaboratively because, you know, we weren't part of the communities and we wanted them to feel like it was going to be helpful, you know? And mm-hmm. so we had kind of this transparent process of like, well, we're going to send you our edit and, you know, just give us feedback or edits and give us notes. And, okay. and if there's anything you want to see different, just let us know. And, and I think for a lot of filmmakers, that sounds crazy. That sounds like a nightmare <laughs> just in a minute, you know, it's, it sounds like, um, really difficult and, and, Mm -hmm. You know, on some levels, there was some challenges to it, but it it made it feel really um, a lot, you know, a lot more like a group project instead of like showing up and extracting something from a community, which is what Mm. a lot of journalism and media tends to do with Native communities. And we're very aware of that and really trying to make sure people felt excited about what we were doing and, um, 
so there was a, yeah, there was a big process of kind of, you know, getting feedback and it was really helpful. You know, there's things, we did make a few mistakes, you know, yeah. and we took some stuff out. We had this like archival footage that we thought was really like ironic because it was the United States government being like pretty racist about mm-hmm. native people, like living lightly on the land. And, and then the white man came and did, you know, there's just, there's so many interesting archival films that the U S government has yeah, made that are intensely racist and like unbelievably, mm-hmm. you know, recent, you know, I mean, thirties and forties, yeah. but it's shocking, you know? And so we had a couple things in there that we thought were like ironic and interesting, but it, you know, people felt like they really wasn't helpful and it, it might trigger yeah. and confuse native youth, especially. And, okay. you know, so it was really helpful to have this, um, tribal advisory board to really help us create something that they felt good about. Um, so I would, yeah, I mean, definitely recommend for other filmmakers looking to work with native communities, you know, figure out a way to have, um, accountability and, you know, native people getting to watch the film as you're working on it and really working together Mm -hmm. because at, at the end of the day, like, you know, we need to form allyships and we just need to work together. And, you know, as Ben Alex Dupree says, you know, in the perfect world, this would be made by native filmmakers and it'd be a native, everything would be native crew and native led, but we're not in that world. And, and, you yeah. know, there's so many stories to be told and there's so many privileged people like us who have cameras mm-hmm. and can help, but it's, how do we do that, that step of just working together and really just listening and, you know, being allies. So it's, it's hard, but mm-hmm. you, it's just, you got to have a lot of time. You just got to be able to offer a lot of time. And just yeah. do a lot of listening and, and, um, yeah, working together. That's cool. Yeah. I think I heard someone a few days ago say that a lot of documentaries are actually just like watching an op-ed piece. So, um, it seems like this was not like that at all. Um, which I think is really good. So yeah, I, love that I mean, there's I, like that aspect to it. Almost every community we visited, you know, they were, they've, they've experienced a lot of people showing up for a day or two days or Mm, even like two hours and like capturing what they think the story is and kind of getting it wrong and maybe like exaggerating some parts that make it more sellable. So, you know, we spent like, like a couple weeks to a couple months with each community and, and we always went back and, and, you know, people were, people were surprised when we came back. They're like, Oh, you guys, you did come back. Like you did come to this mm-hmm. really important event. Like you did. So I think, you know, the most important thing again, you can offer is just time and being able to really show up and, and hang out and not be in a rush. <laughs> yeah. Really cool. Um, so I was going to ask, I'm currently reading this book, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kemmerer. She's a m- member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, um, I believe in upstate New York. Yeah. Um, but I in the first Robin. chapter, yeah. yeah, she's so good. But um, I was reading the first chapter um, a few weeks ago and she wrote, uh, for all of us, becoming indigenous to a place means living as if your children's future mattered to take care of the land as if our lives, both material and spiritual, depended on it. Um, and that kind of got me thinking, like, can anybody become indigenous? Um, like, is that an idea that you came across when you're making this film? Just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's certainly an idea I've heard in a lot of non-native circles and kind of debated yeah. about. Um, I think because the word indigenous, the definition of it is pretty contested. It doesn't have mm. any strict uh, numbers or like... Um, it's not defined in a way that can be 
yeah. can be a bit stretched. So I think it's kind of created a little bit of room for debate around who can be indigenous and how long does it take till you're indigenous. And yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I think I understand why that people are talking about it in that way. Personally, myself, I think the word is is similar to the First Nations or original inhabitants. Mm. Okay, and I, I think we wouldn't necessarily want to argue who could be, you know, like what would it take for us to be called first peoples, you know? And, um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say like no one could ever become indigenous. I I just think it's a little bit, um, irrelevant right now because there's, there's hundreds of native communities still facing the effects of colonization and um, environmental pollution and mining and, and oil pipelines that are spilling every, you know, literally everywhere across the Midwest. And, Mm-hmm. I think there's there's so many issues that indigenous people face right now that I I, I find it a little bit odd that I, I'm hearing that question a lot. And I, I think yeah. it's because, you know, I think it's because we really do, I think a lot of, you know, non-native people want to help and, and want to be good land stewards and want to connect to the, the land that they live on. But yeah. I think personally that language is just not necessarily helpful right now. I see. You know, okay. But I do think there's maybe like what I think Robin is speaking to really or also and it and I think is what is was what hits me when she writes is kind of like, can we all become land stewards? Yeah. You know, and I think that's like definitely yes. And if that's what indigenous means to some people, then maybe that's helpful, you know. Mm-hmm. I think the word indigenous just right now is still so charged with history that I don't th- it's I don't think we can yeah. easily swap it around. Um, and I guess for me, we're coming off of like a few years now of doing so much reading of history and really diving mm-hmm. into kind of the background of of just five tribal communities, you know. And there's over yeah. there's over 580 tribal communities and or tribes in this country. Um, and that's mm-hmm. just the federally recognized. There's a lot more wow. that are, have not been federally recognized. So there's yeah. so much culture and there's so much history um, to be learned just in this place, you know. And I think it's it's a lifetime of learning. But again, I think um, we can all be land stewards. We just got to start to learn about who lives, you know, in our region and who's lived here before. And, you know, what can we how can mm-hmm. we support them and learn from them? Yeah, gotcha. That's a good answer. Um, I was following up on that a little bit. This was from the same chapter, another quote, if you don't mind me sharing it. But um, um, again, this was Robin Wall Kimmerer. Uh, She was paraphrasing an agricultural ecologist named Gary Nabin, I think is how you say his name. Um, Mm. She said, we can't meaningfully proceed with healing, with restoration, with restoriation. In other words, our relationship with land cannot heal until we hear its stories. Uh, But who will tell them? Um, so in part of that, speaking to native peoples, um, like getting to know them, learning from them and like learning a lot of the history and the context around all this, um, do you think like filmmaking has a big role to play in that? Yeah, majorly big role. Um, Mm. you know, I think we're in a, we're in a time right now where media really tells a story of our time and it also like informs us of what's possible what's happening and and you know it's like kind of this futurism of like what could happen and what you know what could shape and 
you know, I mean, it's interesting and there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of care that needs to be put into it because, you know, the first documentary ever made was, um, white Europeans filming, um, Northern indigenous people. I, I think it was called in the nook of the North. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, this very that. anthropological, um, very, uh, you know, racist scientific, um, gaze at native people as if they were a specimen to be studied yeah. you know so documentary has a dark history as does photography mm-hmm. and science and all these things you know that are tools but it's right, definitely right. something to be aware of you know there's a, a really famous photographer named edward c curtis who traveled around okay um, the united states taking thousands of photographs of native people and he would set them up in their um traditional clothing and and take these very um staged photographs of their life even that that life had been completely disrupted it was like he was trying to preserve something what he thought before they disappeared and there's a there was there's a huge backlash to his kind of his work because it really um you know was trying to pigeonhole native people in this rom this romantic you know moment and not who they really were and what they were really going through so i think it's you know again like every tool it's a double-edged sword and we need to definitely be um avail you know just willing to really learn all aspects of you know what media can do and and how we Mm -hmm. can be helpful because i think it's an ongoing process of work definitely continuing to go through as filmmakers ourselves and yeah you know the story is so the story is so important and and by having you know i think the big lesson for us is like the more people you can have involved you know the more the story is is going to be benefiting um the greater community because although Mm -hmm. we want to just say you know we have our own vision i think that's where we can get into trouble with when we're telling other people's stories we just need to be you know more collaborative yeah, totally. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, I feel like recently there's been kind of um, a reckoning with uh, John Muir and like a lot of his writing and just the whole conservation movement that happened with, you know, when Teddy Roosevelt was in office. But I think it was the Sierra Club, which John Muir uh, founded or co-founded, I believe. Yeah. But um, they put out a statement um, last year or sometime in the past couple of years saying, you know, like explaining racist history that he had and like some of the awful things that he wrote about native people and we know him or a lot of people I should say know him for you know like the mountains are calling and I must go and you know like these little like cute Instagram quotes like that but there's really a lot more to it than that and um you think about him he's such like an iconic you know figure in like nature writing I guess and in the conservation movement but yet there's still this dark history to it so yeah I think just being cognizant of that is super important yeah. I mean, that's, you bring up a really good point and that's a, that's a whole other documentary that needs to be made. Yeah. You know, and I've been, I've <laughs> totally. thought about it and, you know, there's maybe a way to do it with in a, a big collaborative process, you know, you know, people like John Muir and, and Leopold and you know, there's yeah. this huge movement of um, white men, you know, coming into North America and, and believing that, um, basically creating the, this idea of the wild, you know, the, yeah, the, the no, concept totally. of the wild in itself is like that um, transcendentalist too, a little bit, I guess. 
Yeah. I mean, so, you know, when, when the North America, you know, when North America was first colonized, the settlers came in and, and they said, wow, this is a beautiful, like across the Northeast, they, they called it in their, in their journals, they called it a park-like landscape. There was yeah. open mm-hmm. meadows and there was uh, productive trees and they didn't understand that, you know, for thousands of years, people were doing prescribed burning. They were breeding trees. They were planting trees. They were creating food forests. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they couldn't see the farming. They couldn't see yeah. the forest management because it was so foreign to them. So they mm-hmm. thought they were in a wild landscape. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, um, the way they took land from native people, there was a law that actually stated that if the land was not being, um, if the land was not being used in a productive way for agriculture or, you know, other products, um, it could be taken because it was wild. It was Mm. uh, unmodified and they couldn't actually, the only thing they could see was if, if forest was turned into uh, fields of wheat, they couldn't see native management. They couldn't see wild tending. They couldn't see all the complex systems happening across the country. So, you have people like John Muir and Leopold leaving this legacy of like, oh, this wild landscape that needs to be preserved. And then mm-hmm. you have the national parks, which are basically, you know, essentially these ghost towns of of these yeah. landscapes where there would be thousands of native people living. You know, and we're mm-hmm. there's like you're saying, there's this reckoning right now of like, how do we bring native people back to the parks? And how do we maybe give some of them land back, but and there's just so much tension because these parks are these, you know, billion dollar industry and they're starting yeah. to be, you know, the curtain's starting to be drawn. Like these are people's homes and these are people's traditional yeah. territories. And, you know, there's the Havasupai tribe, like right in the center of Grand Canyon and that, that live next to that really famous waterfall and people get the permit mm-hmm. to go hike in there. And there's kind of, it's like this one example of, you yeah. know, being able to see tribal people living in what we call a park, you know? So it's, yeah. <laughs> It's a really interesting, um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting time for a lot of these, Mm -hmm. you know, conservation movement to really, you know, you know, have the curtain drawn on on all of this history. Yeah, totally. And kind of have to relook at, reexamine, you know, who these, these people were that we call these conservation heroes. And it's kind of a, Mm -hmm. there's this kind of racist angle to a lot of it. And, and, and what yeah, are the next totally. steps really to like, how do we bring native people back into management of national parks? Cause that's what they were doing mm-hmm. until we called them a park, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think I first heard about it with Yosemite, but yeah, there's like a lot where that happened and I agree. Definitely. We need to figure out a solution to that and yeah. at least like recognize the history behind it and move forward from there. But yeah, Yosemite is um, a great example cause they moved, you know, they moved the tribe there, um, like a hundred miles over or something like mm-hmm. they're pretty close, but you know, they're far enough away that you'd never know they exist. Yeah. And you know, they were doing prescribed burning in that, in Yosemite Valley continuously sure. to create all this great forage for elk and all the animals mm-hmm. there. And also to keep the wildfire out, you know, and now mm-hmm. Yosemite's burning, you know, and of, you know, of course they haven't been doing management, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's hopefully as, you know, this climate change ramps up wildfires and, and drought, you know, hopefully yeah. that will push the, you know, the, the greater, the bigger culture to kind of accept some of this, this history. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that got me thinking, um, kind of like, a 
you know, like as we're starting to reckon with that now and like, how are we going to tell these stories? There is a quote um, from another native writer that I came across that I thought was appropriate for that. And that's from uh, Joy Harjo of the Muscogee Creek Nation. She's a U.S. Poet Laureate right now. Um, but I read her memoir, Crazy Brave, last year, and I loved it. But she has this part in that book where she says, um, the commercial aspect of stories threatens the diversity of the world's stories and manners of telling. The television stands in the altar space of most of the homes in America. It is the authority and the main source of stories for many in the world. Um, and that seemed just especially appropriate because we're talking about Orca film. Um, but then also um, the producer of this film, Ben Alex Dupree, um, I was reading an interview that y'all recently had with uh, Civil Eats uh, uh, online magazine, I guess. And he said, um, the commodification of indigenous narratives has existed for as long as film has. So I was wondering, like, from your perspective as a filmmaker, how do you keep from commodifying, um, I guess, like indigenous narratives in this way that he's referring to? And um, like, how do we begin this work of reckoning, I guess, without commercializing it and kind of warping the story? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, a really big question. good question. And <laughs> but yeah. It's, it's, you know, I don't have all the answers. I, you know, sure. and I think it's important to remember, like, nobody has the answers. Um, I think it's a long process of how do we work with Native communities to support them and mm-hmm. not take away from them. And, yeah. you know, I think it's, I think one thing that we need to do is just being, you know, learn how to be really humble. Um, I think filmmakers specifically tend to be a little bit, you know, (laughs) uh, controlling about what they think they want to do or what they want to, you know, and I've had that in myself too. And I, I think, you know, when you're, you're dealing, you know, especially with native communities, um, it's so important to remember like that, you know, you're, you're coming into their world, and you're you're trying to help, but they might not necessarily want help from you. Um, there's a yeah. there's a really um, there's a really awesome uh, native scholar named um, oh, I can't remember her name right now, but you know she she recommends asking yourself like uh, can I help if at all? You know, and yeah. asking the communities like can I help if at all? And I think okay. that's really important because you know we might think we can always be helpful in, in every situation or stories we hear about, but maybe like, that's not the most helpful thing. So sure. our process, you know, and I'm not saying this is across the board, but our process was yeah. um, first meeting people in the conference space who were already giving presentations about their projects. So they were people mm-hmm. who already really wanted to share uh, publicly what they were doing. And then through okay. them asking, you know, who else in the community might be interested in sharing so gotcha. I think you can run into trouble when you kind of just go off and, and trying aggressively kind of ask people questions and kind of try and force something. But if you have the time, yeah. if you have years and, and you have, you know, slowly build relationships and, and just put feelers out there about who might be interested in, in sharing um, and just let it happen naturally. You know, I think a lot of media creation is happening at a really high speed right now. And I think yeah. you, lo- you lose a lot of that really important relationship building that, that takes, um, many years. So yeah, I think slowing down and, 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 you know, building the relationships first and then, you know, I think the filming comes later. Yeah, totally. Not just like rushing in with an agenda already in mind, kind of like you were saying with some of the other film projects or I guess TV segments that get made about the subject. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I mean, and it seems like this is an area where they're like, is starting to become a lot more interest. Um, I think because of climate change, um, because we've gotten to a point where we've realized like, Oh shit. Like (laughs) we can't keep doing this. Like we're literally going to go extinct if we keep doing this. And, um, we have to, you know, like figure out more sustainable ways to manage the land and, you know, um, grow our food and that sort of thing. And, um, in February of last year, I read this article that was in Scientific American. It was called Indigenous Lands Ace Biodiversity Measurements. Um, and it was about this study that was, it actually wasn't done in uh, the United States, but it was done partially in Canada, but also Brazil and Australia. There were like, I think it was diff- uh, 15,000, I think it was, different areas that um, these researchers had studied land that was either managed exclusively or co managed by indigenous people. And they found that, like, in almost every case, biodiversity went up when indigenous people were managing this land. So, um, I mean, obviously you made a documentary <laughs> about this very topic. Do you think that, you know, people, more people are starting to realize this and, um, why do you think it's taken so long for that to happen too? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why it's taken so long. I mean, this, sure. you know, this country, and this culture that we live in is has been in such denial of colonization, um, modern day colonization. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't until 2007 that the last um, boarding school was closed for you know that oh, native children yeah. being taken from their parents and yep. being you know forcibly you know culture removed from them. You know, 2007. Yeah. I mean, it's I, I, I don't crazy. think, and I really had no idea how you know how much it's still happening today in, in terms of how much yeah. these communities have to deal with. Um, and I think our, our culture has had really, you know, a huge a bl- intentional blind spot around, yeah. you know, the, the, the really violent history of how it was founded, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that plays a big role, but I think also, you know, we, in terms of like, we're very like solution oriented culture and um, yeah. we continually think we're going to invent uh, our way out of problems, you know, and I, I, yeah. I don't think totally, you know, and when, cause when you invent something, you also make a lot of money, you know, and I think simple answers, <laughs> yeah. simple answers to big problems are, are, you know, skipped over because they can't make a lot of money. You know, it's, it's much easier mm-hmm. to, you know, to understand things through a capitalism lens than it is to understand things through any kind of holistic lens as, you know, yeah. is, yep. as we all know. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's really in this, in this final hour that we're seeing, you know, governmental agencies saying, wow, you know, prescribed fire is kind of important. Um, maybe we should <laughs> consult with the Kirk tribe, you know, maybe we should listen to what the Yurok are doing. Um, you know, it's kind of in these desperate times, you know, that's, that's what it's taken. And I think that's very revealing of, of, you know, how, how ignorant, you know, the, the, the governmental agencies have been and, and how intentionally, mm-hmm. um, you know, how, how intentional they've been with really kind of pushing away any, you know, you know any possibility of native people to have any type of management power or any type of say yeah. in, um, you know, what's happening on, you know, on all the public lands, let alone, you know, their ancestral lands. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I think unfortunately, like a lot of things, it's taking like these really, um, it's taking these, these desperate times are, are pushing us into a, 
a better place on some level. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I guess now is like a time when it's really, uh, starting to become apparent that if you try to run an entire economy on like a profit based model, like there's just so many things you're going to miss if you're doing it that way. There are so many important things that don't make a profit, but they're just as important, you know, and I, hopefully we're starting to realize that a little bit more. Um, I feel like if we, you know, like if the current administration does like what they were talking about doing and making, you know, huge investments and in, in like infrastructure and, you know, like um, getting us off of fossil fuels, basically, that would be like a good example of that. But yeah, it's just, this is just so ingrained in our minds. It seems like it's almost impossible to imagine doing anything differently. Yeah, totally. You know, and I, I think the Menominee tribe is a really good example of, you know, how do we work within the economic framework, but like in doing so really like unravel capitalistic values, you know, so yeah. they, so they have more standing timber than they did 200 years ago, but they've been continuously logging the entire time. Mm -hmm. And the only way they've been able to do that is because they have, you know, over, I think it's over 15 species of trees. You know, they, they're using that native yeah. ecosystem diversity to their advantage. Um, mm. You know, that they also aren't making a lot of profit. They're basically making yeah, enough yeah. to continue um, to sustain. And they've been able to employ like hundreds of people on the reservation in the business. But they mm. also see that the value of a healthy forest is equally as valuable as getting you know, if not more valuable it is as making a profit mm -hmm. from it. So they, their whole kind of methodology is like, okay, we, we need our sawmill needs to be able to deal with like 15 different types of trees. Most sawmills, it's like okay. one type of tree is everything is designed around. They're like, no, we have to be able to deal with 15 types of trees because <laughs> we have a, like a ecosystem health plan for the forest mm -hmm. and whatever okay. we have to cut for that plan, that's what we're going to mill and then sell. So they have this advantage of being like, we have a diversity of hardwoods, but we don't have an insane amount of one thing. So when the market goes up on pine, for example, most yeah. companies say, okay, now we just cut all our pine. And it's like, we can't do that because we have an ecosystem health plan. We have a management plan. Yeah. So, I mean, they're a really good example of kind of how do you fit into this framework of, um, yeah. you know, our, the current economy, but then kind of design it to say, well, we still have a healthy forest. We don't care about what the economy mm. wants us to do, which is plant a monoculture. <laughs> you know, we're not stupid. Yeah. We know the healthy mm -hmm. forest also gives us deer and all types of wild foods, wild medicine. Yeah. It has, you know, so many other important aspects for fish, for yeah, river totally. health, for swimming, um, you know, mm -hmm. all the different things that, you know, happen in an ecosystem. So they're a really great example. And, you know, there's others, but I, I think it's, it's really cool and, and just so humbling to look at, you know, how native communities have, have taken, have adapted to this like Western economy that's been forced on them. Yeah. And they've been able to, you know, figure out, you know, in some cases they've been able to figure out really incredible, you know, ways that the rest of the world could learn from. Yeah. It's a much more like holistic view of economy of thinking about what that word means. Totally. And I, 
Totally. Yeah. You know, That's they, they, they want to make a living without trashing the place, basically. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. And I, mean, I think also because they use the force so much culturally mm. um, for so many reasons that they're like, of course, we're not going to clear cut and just plant red pine for miles. We, we like really yeah. care about this place. And I think for the rest of the country, like we're so disconnected from where our resources come from. that of course, mm-hmm. we don't care. We have no direct yeah. relationship with it. It's hard to care when you don't have a direct relationship with something, you know, and that's understandable. But I think, you know, because Native communities really live in, you know, within the resources that they uh, use or have turned into economic, you know, businesses, that they Mm -hmm. have a a really intimate connection with that, you know, land base. And therefore they're like, we don't, you know, we're not going to trash it. And that's just kind of, of course, it, it makes so much sense. And I think if we all kind of understood or could live closer to or have, greater connections yeah. with where our resources come from. We'd be like, why would we trash it? Cause then we, yeah. then we lose, even though we have, we made some money. So it's, mm-hmm. yeah, there's so much inspiration out there, you know, <laughs> and it, it takes a, you know, the Menominee community is, is so busy doing what they do. They don't have a lot of time to advertise themselves. You know, they're just trying yeah. to make ends meet doing this like very sure. sustainable forestry. So, you know, it took That's a great. lot of time to kind of like make time to set up some interviews, but they all were really excited mm, about okay. sharing, really excited, yeah. you know, but also really busy and not, yeah. Don't have time to do Ted talks. You know, I mean, it's, it's another world of like really trying to make it work. So, you know, I I think we can all benefit from just, you know, going out of our way to try to learn from these, you know, these communities. Yeah. Which is why I think it's really important that people like you are making documentaries like this now, because it's like at the time when we needed to be reconnecting to like the land the most, it's like we're the most ill prepared to do that now because we live in, you know, uh, a society where stuff comes to you from all over the world, literally like you can go to the grocery store and buy shrimp and then like look in the back and it comes from Argentina or something. And you're like, I thought this would have just come from like the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> um, Cause it's right there. But so you lose this connection because it's not close to you. Um, and yeah, I think if we can see it, um, you know, in the format of a film or whether that's a book or whatever, then that helps a little bit to like help us realize that, you know, we're more connected than we maybe realize we are. Yeah. And we're not alone. You know, I think what we realize and like what's so important to remember is that, you know, native communities have been here for millennia, which is Mm -hmm. multiple thousands and they know how to live in these places, you know, and their cultures Mm -hmm. have been deeply disrupted um, but there is a lot of, you know, wisdom that is intact that is, and there's a lot of people who are ready to be, you know, have more power as, as guides and as, you know, allies yeah. and working together because for Menominee, for example, their, you know, their reservation is a square of green around th- thousands of square miles of, of cleared farmland there's this square mm-hmm. of forest if you look on a map on a satellite map you can see them from um you know from space it's like yeah. one of the only reservations yeah. you can make out from space because it's a perfect square of forest and yeah. nasa actually used their edge of their reservation to focus their satellites at one point because it was <laughs> such a clear line between where their wow. reservation ends and where industrial agriculture begins you know 
And, you know, I think as we traveled around the country and met with more native communities, it was, it was this constant reminder to us that like, no matter what region you're in, there are tribal communities who know so much history and know mm-hmm. so many ways to live in that place sustainably. And the fact yeah. that they're alive today is like proof of that, you know, yeah. and we have a long way to go to humble ourselves to, you know, sure to ask them to help us and teach us and mm-hmm. work with them, you know, and it's the fine line between like, okay, I learned something and I take it away and now I do it over here. Yeah. Between yeah, like, yeah. okay, like you're teaching me and I'm going to work with you and I'm going to stay in relationship with you. You know, and I yeah. think it's something we all have to figure out, but um, I, yeah, like you're saying, it's just such an important time <laughs> to connect to the land base. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I kind of worry about a little bit when I, hear people talking about, um, you know, how I guess like Western society needs to learn from indigenous cultures or like industrialized society needs to learn from indigenous people, um, is I guess that kind of appropriation of like, okay, like, thanks for teaching us. We're going to, you know, take it now. Um, but it really needs to be, you know, like a dialogue and a two way thing. And, you know, we didn't come up with these methods of doing it. You know, these people who have been here for over 10,000 years did, and I don't know totally. that like, yeah. I don't know how we do that respectfully, but I'm wondering if you have any ideas. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't necessarily know either, but I, you know, I, I have a sense that it, it needs to start with, you know, first figuring out how do we give native people more land back that was taken mm-hmm. from them? And yeah, how do totally. we give, you know, you know, how do we start restoring and repairing, you know, their, their own sovereignty, which has been taken from them in a lot of cases, yep. you know, and, and I think the like teaching us how to do practices maybe comes at the end of like a longer list of, okay. um, you know, how do we empower, you know, tribal communities and, and how do we get them more access to their ancestral territories? The Kirk tribe, for example, you mm-hmm. know, is surrounded by million acres of their ancestral territory but they don't have a single acre to their tribe because Mm -hmm. the united states government never ratified their treaty because gold was found in the hills and then other minerals and other mining you know so every time they want to burn they have to Uh apply for a burn permit and an air uh, clearance and all these different processes with you know the the, um, forest rangers and with like um, cal fire so, I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, they've been in that Klamath River Valley for thousands of years. They know what they're doing, and yet they have to jump through endless hoops to do a small-scale burn in a small part of the forest. So, you know, I think that's, that's where it needs to start is how do we really shift that power structure back to tribal communities, and then yeah. how can they teach us in a way that, you know, really works together, like you're saying. And we got definitely have a long way to go, but as you're saying, like, as more people become aware and more people in the right places and the higher levels of government agencies, you know, I think that's when we're going to start to see more mm. change and, and more yeah. story restoration. Yeah. That's such a great <laughs> way that he did a play on words like that. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that, um, last year, uh, Deb Holland was, um, elected to, um, 
Secretary of the Interior for the United States, and that was such like a huge moment for uh, Native people. I felt like, do you, I mean, did you see any, um, I guess, effects of that that you could see when you were making the documentary, or just we need more of that? Yeah, certainly. Um, we we heard a huge amount of excitement across the board, you know, around Deb Holland being, you know interior and you know that's never been a native person has i've never had that role and that it has such a huge impact on mining contracts on development of tribal territories on you know environmental pollution environmental racism so it's a huge Mm -hmm. step and it's um you know long overdue but i think people feel like there's going to certainly be a massive you know more uh protection of of land but also more funding for um, you know, traditional land management. So it's, it's mm. a huge step. And I think we're going to see, you know, a lot of big, big effects over the next few years. Yeah. Um, I was also going to ask when I was, I guess, poking around on the film's website before we started talking, I noticed there was a tool where you could, um, go to a map and like enter your address, your zip code or whatever. And it would tell you what native land you're living on. Um, and I think it's important to mention that, um, this podcast currently where I'm talking to you from is made on um, what is traditionally Cherokee and Muscogee land, depending on, you know, like where you see where the border is. But um, I was curious to hear your take on why you think it's important for people to, you know, learn that history and find out what land they're actually living on. Yeah. Awesome. I'm glad you found that resource. Yeah. So here's a great, amazing tool to actually start to figure out what, tribal land do you live on who is the tribe you know that used to be there or may still currently be there you know where are they now and how can you support what they're doing now and how can you learn from them um you know the cherokee and a lot of the southern tribes were of course moved into the midwest you know the cherokee along with a bunch of tribes were forced to walk to oklahoma 800 something miles you know so pretty long ways from here yeah yeah, the Trail of Tears. And, you know, I think what that map does is it just blows open so much history that's literally where yeah. we're sitting and helps us to realize that we're like where we where, where we are is there's so much story under our feet yeah. in this place. Um, there's so much to know. And there's there's so much happening currently with those tribal communities that, you know, you can directly support whether that's through, you know, donations or just through sharing their stories or going and visiting their events or just showing up and talking to people. So I think that map is like a really great launch board, you know, for a whole different array of things you can do as an artist or as a journalist or, you know, as anyone who wants to maybe interact with that community and try and try and be of help in some way. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, because I was curious about that. So I'm glad you said that. Um, Yeah, and then I guess we're kind of coming up on time here, but um, I know that the film is going around right now, and um, I think it premiered in March, is that right, at a film festival? Yeah. Um, But wondering, like, is there going to be a time when just the general public can watch it? And if so, like, where can people find it? Yeah, so the film will be publicly available... um, in late November, I think okay. we're scheduling it for like the day before Thanksgiving. Um, so people can, you know, 
that's Native American Heritage Month in November, you know, so it yeah. would be a really great time for people to kind of dig into some more history and, and sure. some, you know, some celebration really of, of tribal communities. And if you follow our website, inhabitantsfilm.com, and, you know, we're on Facebook and Instagram, Inhabitants Film, there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of free screenings we're doing this summer. Okay. We have an impact campaign where we're doing a free screening every month along with a a virtual panel of a bunch of film subjects focusing on each Mm. of the five stories in the film. So over five months, we're going to have five events and you can follow all that kind of on our website. And, um, okay. Yeah. There's lots of information on there. Cool. Awesome. Well, Costa, I think that about, uh, answers all my questions that I had. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you. I'm excited to see the film when it comes out and yeah, thanks for being on the show. Cool. Thank you so much for having me and, you know, hope everybody gets to check it out and, you know, learn more about where they live and the people who have lived there. Stories for Earth is written and produced by me, Forrest Brown. The music you heard in this episode is also by me. If you want to support further production of the show, you can do so by becoming a member on Patreon or by donating what you think the show is worth through Venmo. Just search at Stories for Earth in the Venmo app. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time.